I'd like to invite you now to turn in your copies of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses this morning. And today we're going to be considering what could be one of the most neglected doctrines in our modern era. But this doctrine, though it may be neglected in many areas of the church, is one of the core essentials to the Christian faith. And this doctrine is what has become known as the doctrine of union with Christ. So as we read this passage, I'd like for you to take careful note of the in him statements that this passage is all about being in Christ. And this will provide the foundation upon which this doctrine is built. So here now the inspired and errant and infallible word of the living and true God from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. And with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Thus far the reading of God's Word, let us ask His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would add a blessing 
to the reading of Your Word. And now as we come to the preaching, we ask that You would add a blessing to the preaching of this Word. And as we sit here, as we sit at the feet of Christ and listen to His Word proclaimed, we ask that You would add a blessing to our hearing of this Word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in Your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. When we speak of union, what is it that we mean? We often hear of marriage being a union between man and woman. It's common to hear of workers' unions. And the flag of Great Britain is called the Union Jack. Even the preamble of the United States Constitution uses the phrase in order to create a more perfect union. So what does this mean? What does union mean? Well, the dictionary defines union as an act or instance of uniting or joining two or more things into one. Applying this definition to the examples above really makes things clear in those particular situations. We're accustomed to seeing the union of man and woman in marriage where the two become one flesh. We're used to workers uniting for a common cause. And we're used to nation states being brought together to form a single political body. But what isn't quite so clear is the phrase union with Christ and what it actually means. Union with Christ is the doctrine whereby man is reconciled unto God and is brought into unity with the Son in His person and in His work. Now I know this may seem like a loaded definition, but I hope that through looking at this passage, we come to a fuller understanding of this blessed doctrine. In one area where I believe that we are short in our understanding of God, I know I am, is in the doctrine of the Trinity. And we're short in that doctrine and what we should know because of the mystery of the doctrine of the Trinity. And the roles that the three persons of the Godhead play in the plan of salvation. But Paul in this passage here gives us an understanding of how the Godhead operates in our salvation. A simple reading of Ephesians 1 provides us with a fuller understanding of the triune structure of redemption. This passage introduces 
believers to the glorious doctrine of union with Christ in such a way as to, as to show the Trinitarian nature of that union. And this is the first point that I would like for us to consider. The role of the Godhead in our union with Christ. Verses 4 and 5 show us the Father's role in this act. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. These verses show us that the Father's electing and predestinating of His people in eternity past is, found, is the foundational root without which union with Christ is not possible. Verse 7 goes on to show us the Son's role in accomplishing our union through His sacrifice for His people. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The atoning sacrifice of Christ is the basis of our union with Him. It's by His shed blood that we are united to His body. In verse Verse 13 provides the Spirit's act in applying the Father and the Son's work to the believer. And it's the Spirit's applying this work to the believer that fully unites him to the person and work of Christ. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal that truly and finally bonds the believer to union with the Son. And it's all according to the predestinating foreknowledge of the Father. The the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they work together in this act of uniting us to Christ. And it's the Spirit who is the seal of this union. And this seal is alluding to the signet of a king, of a sovereign, which when the king places that seal upon an item or upon a document... It, uh, told, it told people to receive that document or that item as not only authentic, but as backed by the king's authority and power. And so this means that the seal of the Spirit is the guarantee of our union with Christ and it's backed by the power and the authority of the ultimate King and Sovereign, our Lord, over all creation. 
And because redemption is ultimately bound within the overarching nature of union with Christ, all three persons of the Godhead in their covenantal relationship with one another have bearing upon the believer being united with Christ. It's out of the union of the three persons of the Godhead that assurance of believers' union with Christ comes. Because it's not our doing that unites us to Christ. It's God's. And as surely as God cannot fail, so too our union with Christ cannot fail. So after recognizing the role of the Godhead in the act of uniting us to Christ, I would like for us now to look at this union in a little more narrow focus, focusing on Christ's redeeming work, uniting us to the church, to His body. And this is seen in verses 7-10. through 10. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. That tenth verse shows us the purpose of the redemptive work spoken of in verse 7. That all things are united together in Him. It's to be understood that through the redemption accomplished by Christ on the cross, God's elect are grafted into Christ. Himself. And Paul makes this even more clear in Romans 11 and verses 17 and 18 when he uses the imagery of grafting in plants. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree... Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. We are wild olive trees. We don't belong to the root naturally. We don't belong to the tree into which we have been grafted. But because we have been grafted in, we have been made one. We are no longer a wild olive branch, but we are now one with the tree rooted in Christ. It's no longer two separate trees, but one indistinguishable tree. Christ's work has so perfectly brought us into union with Him that we can now say that I am crucified with Christ. 
And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You've been united with Christ into His body. Well, what does this have to do with being united to the church? Well, so often in Scripture, we see that the church is being referred to as the body of Christ. If we are united to Him in His body, are we not also inseparably united with the church? It's only because of this doctrine of union with Christ that we can rightly confess with believers throughout the centuries that we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. If the invisible church is made up of believers and believers are truly united with Christ, it necessarily follows that there can only ever be one holy Catholic apostolic church for Christ is God and cannot be divided into parts. We are united together as one body in Christ as the church. I pray that we will see that our view of the church can only rightly be understood in light of the doctrine of union with Christ. But now I want us to take a turn. And I want us to look at what I believe is the most important part of this doctrine that's laid out in this passage. And the final point that I would like for us to consider is the benefits that flow from union with Christ. And this is a big one, and it spans the entirety of this passage. And it begins in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the broad overview that Paul provides as the signpost for where the rest of this text goes. It's through union with Christ that believers are partakers in all spiritual blessings. So what are these spiritual blessings? Well, the answer is right there in our passage. Holiness and blamelessness, as verse 4 tells us. Adoption as sons, verse 5. Redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, verse 7. Wisdom and insight, verse 8. Knowing the will of God, verse 9. Being made one. Verse 10, an inheritance. Verse 11, 
the Gospel and the sealing of the Holy Spirit in verse 13. These are the spiritual blessings that you have if you are united with Christ. Now I know this may seem like a lot, but when you look at all of these spiritual blessings collectively, we see that it's actually an articulation of all the things pertained to the life of a believer. That in Christ, you have everything you need for faith and life. Everything having to do with salvation is found in Christ. And once again, we see the Trinitarian nature of our union specifically pertaining to the benefits of salvation. The Father elects and predestinates blessing His elect with every spiritual blessing. The Son purchases these blessings through His work on the cross on behalf of the elect. The Spirit seals believers to that union chosen by the Father and purchased by the Son so the believers actually take possession of all the realities of being united to Christ. All of the spiritual blessings that are found in Him. In verse 13 and 14 are the texts pertaining to this. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The entire Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, works in bringing you these spiritual blessings that are only found in your union with Christ. And because you have the seal of the Holy Spirit, you are guaranteed these blessings. Everything that is listed in this passage is yours because you are in Christ. So what does this all mean for us today? It's great to have knowledge of this doctrine, but if it doesn't affect how you live your life, then it's vain. It's nothing but intellectualism. Now this doctrine of union with Christ, it has practical implications for numerous areas of life. But I want us to look at what I believe are the two most important areas. The first area of application is in relation to one's sanctification. We'll look at sanctification in more detail this evening, but in short, sanctification is us being made holy. This is the area where I and and many people that I know experience doubt 
about salvation. Martin Luther said that Christians are simultaneously justified and sinners. That we have a war within us between the flesh and the spirit. And we all experience this in our daily lives. We all have sins that seem to continue to rear their ugly heads at times. And sometimes these sins can be minor things that are easily fought off. But other times these can be besetting sins that are extremely difficult to conquer. But Romans 8.13 tells us to put to death the deeds of the body. We're called to put to death our flesh in order to live in newness of life with Christ. Yet this can often seem like a daunting task. What are we to do when it seems like a sin will never be put to death? Does the presence in does the presence of sin in your life mean that you're not a true Christian? These are questions that I find myself asking often. And this is where doubting your salvation can begin to manifest. But I'm here to give you comfort and to show you the biblical approach in these times. Verse 7 of our passage instructs us that our redemption, which encompasses all of salvation, is rooted in our union with Christ. By resting upon the promises of Scripture and examining your life, you can be reassured that your salvation is sure. Because it's not based upon how good you are or how holy you have become or whether or not you have doubts. Your salvation rests upon the covenant that our triune God made before the foundations of the world and it's rooted in the finished work of Christ. By resting on these scriptural truths, you can be sure by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that your union with Christ is sure. Christ said that He would lose none and that no one would be cast out. So you can find confidence that you belong to Christ and He will never leave you or forsake you. Now that's not to say that we can live life without putting to death the flesh. There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We ought to work out our faith in fear and trembling. If we love Christ, we will keep His commandments. If there's no desire to be holy or to work out your faith or to keep His commandments, then I plead with you today to repent and believe in Him. Confess your sins in humble reliance upon Christ 
who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ came to die for sinners. Trust in Him today and you will be saved. The other, the other area in which I believe this doctrine most greatly affects our lives pertains to how we relate to one another. I love the Reformed faith. I love our doctrine. I love the Reformed Presbyterian Church and its doctrines. But none of this is what we ought to be known for. I'll be the first to admit that there are those who are in the Reformed faith who have tasted the sweet nectar of God's marvelous grace. The ones who ought to be humble because of the doctrines that we profess. But we can sometimes be some of the most prideful and arrogant people to claim the name of Christ. It hurts my heart. It hurts my heart to see this, most of all because I see it in myself. We think we have things right. We think we know better than others. And so we lord that over other people. I'm guilty of this myself. How can we believe a doctrine that teaches our salvation is not of anything within us and that all that is in us is corrupted prior to regeneration and that God's election was not because there was anything special about us and then turn around and make ourselves into some higher class Christians because we believe these things. That's the epitome of hypocrisy. This is one of those sins in my life that continues to show its fangs. I don't say this out of a false humility or a desire to be lauded, but out of a heart of honesty and confession. We have to humbly teach these doctrines that the Lord has given to us and not look down upon others because the Spirit hasn't shown them these truths yet. We're all united in Christ through our union with Him. We're all united together. We are one body. We are one church. What does it benefit for the arm to look down upon the foot or for the nose to look down upon the mouth? It doesn't benefit the body. We must work together. We must seek to never cause division or strife because of these things. We must not be known as a people divided or as a people of pride. The Word of God tells us what we are to be known for. In John 13.35, Christ gives us the answer of what we are to be known for. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
in all these arguments, in all these debates, in all these conversations, does the person that you're disagreeing with know that you have love for them? Bigger question, do the people watching from the outside see you having love for one another? And perhaps the biggest question pertaining to this, does the unbelieving world look at us and say that we, despite our disagreements, we have love for one another. If the answer to all those questions is not a yes, then we're not showing Christ in our words and deeds. But how does this apply to our union with Christ? Well, I've already said it before. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. We as believers are all united to Christ and we are all now one. Do not rip the body of Christ in two because you fail to show love to your brothers. This isn't to say that we shouldn't have different denominations and we can't have disagreements. We absolutely should separate ourselves over certain matters. But we should seek to live at peace with others in love. For they're but another part of the same body as us. And that body is Christ. Let us never be known as a church who spews hate for those with whom we disagree. I pray that we are known as a church who shares the truth and love with grace in the heart. I pray that the Lord would continue to build us up in this. That we would continue here in Winchester or in Westminster, Colorado that we would continue showing the love of Christ to each other and to those around us and to the lost and dying world. Brothers and sisters, I know that this doctrine of union with Christ can be difficult. It can be difficult to understand. And I know that I didn't even begin to do it justice in my exposition of this text but simply scratched the surface. I pray that this begins to stir within our hearts a new desire to marvel at the beauty of what it means to be united with Christ. I pray that we see that this is one of the most vital doctrines of the Christian faith. We cannot afford to forget it. Let this doctrine change the way that we view all of our faith and how we interact with one another and how we live as one body, the church united in Christ, because this is the root doctrine upon which all others stand. Let us seek to live 
in unity with one another as the body of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we do thank You that the Godhead has united us with Christ. Father, we ask that You would apply these truths to our hearts that we would seek to be a people of love. That we would love one another. That we would love our community. That we would love the lost world around us. Loving our enemies. Father, let us never forget that we are one. United in Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.